Well, we're going to get the show on the road because it's the end of um, just a fire hose of 48 hours. And so um, we're going to show you a video with cussing in it. Right. Just have to set that up a little. Um, the, the, the language in this video is not good, so if that's a problem for you, you might want to um, go to your mental Bahamas right now or go get coffee or something. But um, this, when I think of confirmation, actually, this is one of the first things that comes to mind. It's a clip. It, I think it's a home video. I, I'm imagining that there's a little brother on the far end of the dining room table, you know, phone filming this until he gets discovered at the end, which you'll see. But um, what's happened here is that Michael, who's about 15, has just been confirmed. He decides now would be a good time to tell his mom that he's an atheist. So, watch. You're an atheist. Give me a fucking break, Michael. All right, you know what? We need to start going to church every week. I've had it with us. I don't believe in God. Bullshit. You got yourself confirmed, and you said to the bishop. Yeah, but a lot can happen. You can think. Oh, a lot can happen. All of a sudden, you can just quit believing in God? Yeah. All of a sudden, there is no God. Yeah. Well, I let me tell you. You want to know there's no God? Then you're going to get absolutely nothing. Nothing for Christmas, because that's what Christmas is about, is Jesus Christ. Okay. No, it's not okay, Michael. It is not okay. You have... Discovery time, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Whoa, right. That's my reaction every time I look at this. And... And that's real. Yeah, that's re yeah, that's not staged, right? Yeah, that I look. I you know YouTube. I don't know if YouTube has changed my life, and I ridiculous amounts of hours get spent on looking up silly things like this. But I found this right before I was speaking at a Catholic youth ministry conference, um, and not realizing it was a Catholic family that was. I didn't put that together in time. But the people I was speaking to knew. And so they said, and it had gone viral in that community, um, out of recognition and some shame and some horror, <laughs> you know. And they said to me, because they knew the clip, and so before I got up to talk, they said, this is a convention center. There are like, I don't know, thousands of people there. They said, um, could you cough over all the cuss words? So I was strategically coughing into the mic as this was going on. But the thing, the, the, here's the thing, whenever I, whenever I see that clip, I, you know, I, I have some sympathy for that mom. And it's not just because, you know, it's, it's not just because her, you know, inner life just went viral, but because, I, first of all, I don't want a camera in my house. When my kids were young, we were getting ready for church. Man, that was, we were not in peak Christian form at that time of um, the week. Um, and the dad was so much help. Did you notice that? <laughs> it's only like that then, yeah. But here's the thing. We are here at this particular point in our conversation to talk about what's at stake in doing this. Something is at stake here for that mom. Something's at stake there for Michael. So take just a second with the person beside you. We got three questions. Just play with whichever one captures you. What's at stake for mom? What's at stake for Michael? And does confirmation in your church help young people become 
more like Jesus or the part that's cut off or more like us? Go. ETA here. I'm going to try to you make this good. be done by 3.30. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that. I'm trying to get off. I'm trying to get out of your way. <laughs> oh, no. This is great. Okay, well, if, if it goes over a bit, I have, I can make mine fatter or long, skinnier, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but they're waiting on you. We've got it set up now. Yeah. Got, you've got important data to share. Yeah, well, it'll be good. It'll be good. Tell me if you want to skip anything, but I think... We'll I will. Be... I will. Yeah. Go to the next slide. One more minute. together in one conversation here so she's got one I'm going to bring us back together in one conversation that actually worked yeah come on back okay. so we kind of want to we, we kind of want to do a couple of things in the session we want to remind each other that um, What's, what's at stake is not just how we work with our kids, but why we work with our kids this way, right? Um, what is God confirming in this? Is this really about churchy church kids? We're all going to go home with that line now. Churchy church kids who already have high levels of religious devotion, and we're just saying, good job, pat on the back, keep going. It's not a bad thing. We want, some, we want them to do that. Um, is it about God's transform, confirming God's transforming presence in each young person? Um, go ahead and then, yeah. The word confirmation um, actually is two words, you know, you go back to Latin and you can find anything, right? But um, the, first, the first word for Mara is to make strong or steadfast and con to, together. So um, to practice confirmation is to 
get stronger together, right? There's something to that that I think is worth unpacking a little bit. And what we know is that even in um, many tra traditions, it's not really clear what God is always confirming in a lot of the churches that we looked at. And we do know, though, that even in churches that don't practice formal confirmation, and often in churches that do, there are many forms of youth ministry that functionally help young people become stronger together and to become stronger in their faith together in particular. And there are some things that have emerged about what that looks like. So confirmation means to make strong or steadfast together. And I think we could say that confirmation actually kind of um, serves as a, it creates a plausibility structure for faith. You know, it, a place to put it where faith is something that you can imagine not just being in the ether, but in some way that is real, that you can talk about it, you have a language for it, some, a way that actually matters in the world. And if you stop being with other people who are talking about these things and who are enacting faith in this way, faith often fades. So um, uh, Katie had asked that we try to remind ourselves of the context that we go back into with our ministries. And I'm going to go over a study that I know you already know. It's been around for more than 10 years now. Um, but um, I, I will never be able to escape it. I was part of the research <laughs> team for this, and it will follow me for the rest of my life. But um, it does set us up for some of the things that we're hearing now. So just to remind you, so the National Study of Youth and Religion, which, as you know, is the largest study of young people's faith done in the US. 3,300 young people and their parents were interviewed for this in the first wave, which was 13 to 17-year-olds, and this was about in 2004. And the, the finding that got the most attention, there were lots of things they found, but was the fact that for 60% of the young people that we studied, they said that, yeah, religion really doesn't matter that much. It's fine, you know, if you need it, if you want it, good, you, you do you, good, but I don't really, you know. But that didn't mean that they did not have a functional religious creed, which was called moralistic therapeutic deism by the um, sociologist. And what that meant, it was five things. If you were a moralistic therapeutic deist, you, you kind of believed the, th these were the elements of your faith. God exists who created and orders the world and watches over life on earth. God wants us to be good and nice and fair to each other, which is what most world religions teach, according to teenagers. Um, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. The, the phrase to be happy appeared thousands of times in the interviews. Um, God doesn't need to be involved in my life unless I need God to solve a, a problem. They, they considered God the cosmic butler, somebody who comes when I'm called, or the divine guidance counselor, somebody who makes me feel good when I, you know, I'm feeling kind of low. They were not complimentary about God's job performance on either of those things, by the way. And good people like good dogs go to heaven when they die. There's a shorthand for this. Basically, moralistic therapeutic deism means that religion helps you be nice, it helps you feel good, and otherwise God stays out of the way, right? So it looks kind of Christianish on the outside. The way our, our, I had a class that went over some of this this week, and the way we tried to point out that, yeah, there actually are some differences to say it alongside the Apostles' Creed. We will, I will spare you that exercise. Um, but, you know, because we are, fewer and fewer churches actually recite the Apostles' Creed 
um, as part of their worship service in the US these days, it's less obvious to people how this looks kind of Christianish, right? There are worse heresies out there. But um, just how it differs is not always immediately obvious. Anyway, fast forward 10 years, okay? And guess what? We have the Pew Research that's already been mentioned um, on the nuns, the religiously unaffiliated as the fastest growing religious group in the United States, especially among young adults, 18 to 24-year-olds. It's... Um, about one in three. And then you have other sociologists picking up and they talk about the duns. These are people who are still, they still consider themselves people of faith, but they're done with churches. They're done with congregational life. They just don't, they don't need it anymore, you know. Um, and uh, this, this was uh, data, Katie, I, what was the name of this group that found this data? So there's a way to collect data through Amazon and it's called Amazon's Mechanical Turk or MTurk. Okay. So this is how they fit, found this out. But they listed 11 core values for young adults. And guess what? Spirituality was the least, was at the bottom of that list. It made the top 11. It did make the top 11. That's true. Yeah. And there was no 12. They selected. <laughs> it was like, rate them 1 to 11. And this was at the bottom. I like that, though. <laughs> There's a sociologist that... Um, a uh, college in New Jersey named Tim Clydesdale who, who did a study a few years ago where he found that what happens with young people, particularly as they go into college, but I think it's true also of kids just as they graduate, whether they go to college or not, if they have, they have some kind of a faith identity as a high school kid, what happens is now they are in their, they're exploring the world in new ways, and so they, they kind of put their faith, he calls it a lockbox, they kind of throw it under the bed, they mean to get back to it later, they don't really mean to discard it, but of course, they keep growing, and their faith stays pretty much the way it was when they were still in high school. And you know, they don't. And then when they get ready to go on to the next stage of their life, somehow they stumble on their faith again, and they go, "Oh yeah, that's like my band uniform, right? It was nice. It was nice at the time, but I'm I'm not really never going to use that again. So into the back of the closet it goes, never to be examined again. But there were three exceptions to this, and this is where confirmation comes in. The three except the kids basically who were interested in trying to examine their lives critically and the way they might engage with the world. There were three groups of kids like that, and they kept their faith with them and examined it as they grew. One group, um, Clydesdale called future intelligentsia. Um, basically, these are people who are going to be the folks in the world. Who, pardon? Sorry, I went to the next slide oh. <laughs> and showed Shannon, the future intelligentsia. Oh, well, yeah, she's, Go ahead. she's not one of those yet, but anyway. Um, they, future intelligentsia are people who ask a lot of questions, basically. They're, they're going to become doctors and lawyers and professors and that kind of stuff. So they, they're programmed to ask questions. They, they could ask questions of their faith along the way. Second group was atheists because they don't have anything to lose by examining their faith. They don't buy it anyway, so who cares if it's um, criticized? And the third group he called religious emissaries, who were young people who were driven to understand and engage their faith with the world. Confirmation creates kids like that. So um, I'm going to introduce you to my daughter here, Shannon. This is when she was 15. That was the year she was finally confirmed. It was a circuitous route, as it turned out. Um, what happened was um, we... You know, we dutifully took our kids to 
you know, confirmation. It was kind of the thing that you did in the congregation we were in. And um, Shannon dutifully went through it, but we did tell her, well, no, you don't have to be confirmed in the end. And, you know, she went through it and it was a little bit lifeless and that she bonded with a great mentor. And at the end she said, I don't want to be confirmed. And so we were like, okay, well, we, we set you up for that. So, but, but then it was like, wait a minute. That didn't mean that she didn't want to be part of a community of faith. She just didn't want to be part of that community of faith. You see, it wasn't confirmation. It was the church. Somehow she had gotten the message that God was supposed to stir things up. And there just wasn't a lot stirring in that particular congregation at the time, for her anyway. To be honest, she spoke for all of us. So anyway, there's a long story, but we wound up in this completely, completely hot mess of a congregation that had four rooms and no confirmation class, no youth ministry, because she was the only youth at the time. And there were 20 people on a good... And a cat. And a cat. Oh, yeah, their cat in the neighborhood would wander into worship. Yeah, that's true. And anyway, so unbeknownst to us, we said, look, if you're not going to be confirmed in this one, we got to find a church that you can imagine yourself being part of. So we did what you're never supposed to do. We went looking at churches. Anyway, so we wind up in this little church with a part-time student pastor, 20 people on a good Sunday. She didn't even tell us. She goes to the pastor and she says, I want to be confirmed. Will you confirm me? Aww. Well, he was, a, he was quite busy. There was a seminarian who was attending the church named Wendy, and she said, I'll, I'll walk her through a confirmation process. So Shannon and Wendy went through this confirmation process. As I recall, it included a lot of bubble tea and there was a lot, they, they spent a lot of the time at our dining room table on both ends with two sewing machines talking about John Wesley, we're Methodist, and sewing refugee kits at the same time. Shannon decided, yeah, she was ready to be confirmed, and Wendy, Wendy said, mm -mm, no, you're not. More refugee kits, more bubble tea. So this kept going on until Wendy was pretty sure she actually did know what she was getting herself into if she did this. And um, anyhow, the bottom line is, if you ask Shannon today about when, it, this is what Friedrich said too, if you ask her today about a time she was really sure of God's presence in her life, she would tell you about the day when 20 people in a small congregation came to the altar with her and laid hands on her um, the day that she was confirmed. Now, to this day, I don't know. Was it God? Was it Wendy? Was it something about confirmation itself? Um, is confirmation, like other practices of the church, a human ritual that shapes us into people who belong in the Christian family tree? Or is it also somehow a crack in the heavens where God says, this is my beloved daughter with whom I'm well pleased? So here's the thing, strengthening young people's faith together for all of our best practices is, not, is a task that is far beyond our greatest capabilities. God is the one who confirms, not us. And the current shift that we're beginning to see in youth ministry away from a lot of high-octane programming, I call it kind of a turn to the slow ministry movement, um, impact mattering more than activity and practices mattering more than a lot of um, youth group gatherings. Um, we're in a situation where all of the things we do are means to those ends, but God is the one confirming. Um, of course, this is not a trend, it's a return. This is the way um, formation happened in the beginning before we had a lot of youth programs and so on. Um, but the point is not to get 
teenagers to come to our confirmation programs. The point is to get them to recognize in whatever form it takes God's confirmation of them. So I'm going to turn it over to Katie to talk about what some of the conversations might look like going forward in that vein. We couldn't get our PowerPoints to talk to each other, so. We have a lot in common, but Kenda uses Keynote. I use PowerPoint. But it's mostly, a, a, we wear patterned dresses. There's a lot we have in common. <laughs> <clears throat> Thank you, Kenda. Um, somebody asked about hope. Where's the hope in all of this? And I think Kenda points to this. And this, to me, has been my hope from the beginning. Um, our project, the steering committee, our commitment from the very beginning and our deep hope is that our research would glorify God. And that would be manifest in the faith lives of all of us as we grow closer to Jesus and as the youth who are affected by your ministries and our ministries and our own kids grow in their relationship to Jesus. If you haven't checked it out, Catherine Tanner has an amazing book um, called Christ the Key and she talks about we should in all of our ministries be trying to help kids become more like Christ. She calls it living a cruciform life. So I wanna give you a little bit more um, data. <laughs> Don't glaze over yet or fall asleep, but we've been using a lot of uh, words and language, and I want to um, kind of further develop this and give you some background so that we can keep moving forward. So um, these categories of believing, belonging, and behaving, I did not invent those, but it's such a clever, catchy grouping of words that a lot of people have been using them. We've been using them at this conference. I've heard you use them. I've heard our researchers use them. So I want to give you a little bit of uh, history as to where they come from and then tell you how we've been using those in this project. There's a woman, Grace Davey, who is a British researcher, and she wrote an article in the 90s about the faith of uh, the British population, and she said, there's a lot of believing without belonging. That's what's happening among the nuns. There's a book out by Elizabeth Drescher, and she talks about how it's, all, it's about the spiritual lives of the nuns. They have a very vibrant spiritual life, but they're totally okay with being utterly disconnected from any kind of congregation or church institution. She revisited the study in 2015 and wrote a book called Religion in Britain, A Persistent Paradox. She kind of complicates her own research and also nods to the fact that she used this phrase and then everybody went wild with it. She's like, I don't know what it was about that believing and belonging, but um, people then were writing books called like believing in belonging. Like I believe I should belong to a church, but I don't really wanna go. Um, or my behaviors don't match with my feeling that I belong, even though I never show up. So um, we are using those categories intentionally. Um, so in some of the trends, I just want to tell you that are similar to the ones we are seeing in the United States. She found um, that there are higher levels of belief in God and the levels of belonging, if they measure belonging, it's, it's lower. Um, we see that in our, even the confirmation kids, even the churchy kids, there are slightly higher levels of belief than there are belonging. Although the levels actually are really high. I'll show you in a moment. They also have a phenomenon, they're not calling it the rise of the nuns, but those affiliating with uh, this atheist group or non-believing group went from 24% to 35, 34% of the British population between her two publications. So there's, they're experiencing some of the same things that we're experiencing. Okay, so 
on our team, what we wanted to do was to be able to measure believing, belonging, and behaving. So how do you do that? We gave this survey. It was enormous. I can't believe people went through all of it. It was like 100 questions. And they filled it out. And when you create an index, you are trying to measure things. So when she was measuring believing, she used an answer to a question that was, do you believe in God, yes or no? So a lot of people say yes to that, right? In America, it's like a really high percentage of our population. When we're measuring belief in our study with these kids, we want to measure Christian belief. We're not just saying, do you believe in God? We'd get 100% of the kids saying yes, is my guess. But we created an index. So an index means we took multiple items from our survey, put them together. They were all measured on a five-point scale. And then we took the average of those. There's a way to do statistical or to test to see is this statistically significant. You get a number called the Kronbox Alpha. It has to be above 0.7 for it to be significant. And all of these indexes, all of these indices, had a Kronbox Alpha of above 0.7%. Jacob, give me a high five. <laughs> Woo! All right. So <laughs> Jacob um, did. The lion's share of the work on this, but we've been working on this together. So this is a big set of data, and we're trying to use uh, to group it together in meaningful ways that help us think about different uh, aspects of the faith lives of these youth. So we have an index that measures Christian beliefs. That includes things like belief in the Trinity, that God is personally active, and their attitudes about Christianity. We created a belonging index, which includes things like their personal connections to the church, feeling like worship is for me, and then also Christian behaviors, such as worship attendance, Bible reading, prayer, and service. So you might attend, you might have perfect worship attendance and feel like, man, worship's not really for me. But my mom makes me go if I sleep in this house and I wake up here in the morning, right? So we wanted to be able to look at these things. So that's the way we're using these words when you've heard about um, our researchers reporting it. And I'm going to show you exactly what the items were that went into the index. So these were all items that we measured on our survey. Attitude toward Christianity on a five-point scale. Is it positive or negative? Faith in God helps me in difficult situations. On one end, I strongly agree. One is I d disagree. Jesus is risen from the dead. Belief in the resurrection. Strongly agree would be a five. Strongly disagree would be a one. God created the world. The Holy Spirit is active in my life. Scripture is the word of God. The belonging index um, was it is important to me to belong to the congregation. If I have personal problems, there's someone in my congregation I could turn to. A mentor makes us feel like we belong. The church does not have answers that are important to me. We reversed scored that. So the fives became ones, the ones became fives. Worship services are usually boring. Again, we reverse scored that one. My beliefs are the same as my congregation's belief. Do you have a sense of harmony? Like where I go, I fit in, I belong there. And then finally, how would you describe your attitude toward your congregation? And finally, the behavior index. And then I'm going to share with you the results. So this is, these are like the, tr the classic trinity of sociology of religion. Frequency of worship, personal prayer, and Bible reading. And then your level of agreement with these two statements about volunteering. One is about volunteering within the church after confirmation, serving. Um, and the other one is outside. What can I imagine myself serving outside? 
Okay, here are the results. There were higher, high levels of belief. Um, they were all high. Belief was higher than belonging, but overall pretty high. You'll see on a five-point scale, they're going to be at the four level, threes and fours, some higher than four. Um, and then we were wondering, does participation in confirmation affect these levels already you've heard? I revealed it earlier. It didn't affect it that much over time. There weren't significant changes. So then our question can become, does something else affect Christian belief, behavior, and belonging? We have these indexes, these scales. So is there something that affects these? So time doesn't over a period of time. These are the churchy church kids, right? They're really invested. They have high levels of belief. They come in with high levels of belief, and at the end, they still have high levels of belief. Maybe they can articulate it better. Maybe they understand it better. But they came in kind of with a high score, and they left with a high score. So here comes race and gender. The question I brought to this research over the summer, I've been working on this, I asked the question, do race and gender matter when it comes to these indexes we created? So we have this data that we used, uh, that we can, we can do this with this. So we're going to start with gender. So the question we're asking of our data is, do males and females differ in their Christian believing, belonging, and behaving? We're going to look at them individually. Raise your hand if you think that makes a difference for believing. You have a different sense of belief, levels of belief for men and women. Okay, how about belonging? How about behaving? All right, the big reveal. But first, a couple things. So we asked um, on our survey, uh, are you male, female, or uh, do you prefer not to answer, or they left it blank? One thing I think is significant that, is that 14% of the people who filled this out did not, chose to not indicate. Here's something about statistics. It's awesome. And um, it's a system that we've set up to measure things. If we want to compare our data to other data, we have to use the same, ask the same types of questions. And if we want to compare men and women's experiences, we have to give them categories to select into. Um, and yet, what is the conversation right now around sexuality and gender? The PCUSA just voted. Gender's on a spectrum, right? That complicates our research. It makes it hard. So um, there's a phrase out there maybe by Audre Lorde, the tools of the master won't, will not destroy its own house or can't disassemble it. So we're working with categories that we're critical of, but we're stuck using the categories until we try to, we're working through doing something different. One of the things I, the last time I was in Princeton, I didn't have a book to read on the way home. And right before I went home, I, I used to be a babysitter for Anna McCoskey. And Anna um, was schooling me on the gender spectrum and gender language. And I had no idea. Here are my categories. You're straight or you're gay or you're LGBTQIA+, and I'm really accepting and affirming. And I, but honestly, she had all this language around gender, identity, and sexuality that I was just unfamiliar with. And I'm 37, and I feel like I'm really cool, and I'm hip, and I know what's going on, but I don't. I, she had to teach me. It was really um, beautiful how vulnerable she was willing to be. But anyway, all that to say, I'm going to share about the different experiences of men and women but 
in all of your congregations, I imagine gender is actually much more complicated than what I'm going to present. So keep that in mind. I read a book called um, Beyond Trans. It was by a Princeton University professor, and it was really good. It was actually about political policies, like bathrooms and, and sports teams. The sports ones were really interesting. How do you know that somebody's male or female to participate in an Olympic sport? Follow that rabbit trail. We got to get back to the confirmation stuff. But anyway, I just want to say, we have work to do. And there's a lot of resources that are coming out. OK. So that's one of my questions that I just want to say, a caveat in the background. I'm going to present this, but gender is more complicated than this. So here we have the levels on a scale of 1 to 5. They're paired by index. So these two are believing, then belonging is in the middle, and behaving. So you'll see that the women are the slightly darker color, and the men are sl slightly lighter. What do you notice? They're not that different, but for two of these categories, there is a statistically significant difference that women score higher than men. Women score higher than men on, in every one of these. So women, or females in our study, um, score higher on the index of belief and behavior in ways that are significant. What this is is a description of what the index tells us. To make meaning of that, you're going to have to interpret that, right? You know, you can get a hunch at this. Why is, it, why is this the case? Why is it that historically women always, from the beginning of time, seem to be the ones with higher levels of belief? Um, or they are the ones you find going to church more regularly, if you count men and women. Mm -hmm. I have a slide that shows that, but I was told I shouldn't show it because it's not. Um, uh, I, I haven't run the analyses to see if it's statistically significant, but basically I added a purple line. And it, for the belief, they fall in between the two. Um, for the behavior, they fall in between the two lines as well. But for belonging, there's actually a slightly higher levels of belonging, which to me was actually like gospel, good news. I don't know. Are we doing a really good job in some of our communities of making feel really like you do belong here, you know? That's something to just keep thinking about. I'm going to, this is not in the book, and um, I'm working on a paper, so this will come out eventually, and hope you'll be able to read about this more later. So in addition to gender, um, I wanted to look at race. Does the racial identity, the self-identified racial identity of an individual affect their Christian believing, belonging, and behaving? Do you think it will? Yes, yes or no? Yes. All right, let's see. <coughs> So just to let you know, similar to the gender spectrum question, um, these are the categories we used. Our group was mostly white. The denominations that we studied, four were mostly white, one was mostly black. These are the categories we used. Um, I imagine if I ask for a show of hands, most of us in our family have a racially more complicated family than filling, checking one of these boxes. One of my friends posted on social media, which box am I supposed to check for my kid, right? Because her husband's Colombian. Um, race, honestly, in America, is a, it's a huge conversation right now. Right now, I've been reading a lot in the research around culturally responsive teaching. We have a lot of control over the culture that we create 
in a classroom setting. I can create a culture in here because I'm in charge of it. I can say this is a safe place to talk about race and gender and gender spectrum because I have the power to do that. I'm in control of this space. And one of the things we can do, and I do this in my class with my students who are freshmen, they're like the kindergartners of college, I just love them. Um, as I say, we're gonna talk about really hard stuff in here. We're gonna read books like Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, and he's gonna talk about people on death row, people in prison. He's gonna bring up racial profiling. He's gonna talk about sexual assault and abuse. And you know what, those things intersect with our faith, and those are hard things, and they're real life, and some of you know about these, firsthand experience. And they matter. And I hope no one experiences any tragedies this quarter, but somebody's going to. But we're gonna talk about that here. And you can trust me, I've had this conversation before. One of the things in culturally responsive literature is that in your role as a teacher, as a leader, you tell people, we're gonna go there into hard territory, theologically hard territory. We're gonna talk about resurrection and creation and science. I'm married to a scientist. And, and you can trust me that along the journey, I'm not gonna abandon you. And we can do this together and it's gonna be hard, but it's gonna be good. At the end, we're going to know we've accomplished something really meaningful. So one of the things we can do around race is equip ourselves to have hard conversations or just to start to notice things. Think about your own uh, church or your own youth group. When I show up on Sunday morning, this is what I see. Who's there? What colors do you see? Do you see a lot of gray? <laughs> do you see a lot of d darker pigment? In my church, we're a downtown church. And so we have people who are homeless who wander into our church. How are they treated when they come in? Talk about welcoming the outsiders. Um, we just had this really long discernment process about the gay community and the queer community. And I said, you know what? I want to be at a church where my kids, if they're gay, they're not the first gay person there. Let's talk about this. This is hard, but it's, it's important. Um, one of the things my college students want to talk about, and we heard in our research too, uh, they want to talk about Me Too, Black Lives Matter, legalized marijuana, sex before marriage. How comfortable are we talking about those things? And we can start by talking with our very best friends about it. Say, oh my gosh, I love Aziz Ansari. Did you read that New York Times article? <gasps> we can go there first with our peers and practice. How do I have a conversation? One of my things is, um, I tried this year, taking attendance. I want to invite people to tell me their preferred gender pronoun. So then how do you do that? And I ask people, how do you do that? Do you do that? Who does it? And how are they doing it? So then I said, okay, here's my plan. I'm going to say your last name. You tell me your first name. And then my plan was to have them tell me their preferred gender pronoun. But I had 40 students and it wasn't time efficient. And so then what I said was, I'm going to say your last name. You tell me your first name. And then I'm going to hand out an index card. And you tell me on it your preferred gender pronoun. And then I went through and read through it. But the fact, like me figuring out my level of comfort and discomfort on a topic, then I can lead people and I can indicate or signal to them, I know what's going on. I'm still learning, but you can trust me in this. I care about the same things you, that are really present and important in your life right now. OK, all that to say, we use these categories. I would like for it to be far more complicated and messy. But by using these categories, we can also see people who self-identify in these ways, are they having different experiences in the church? And I have my little caveat thing here too, which is sort of this question in the background. So 
for race, these are clustered. I used a rainbow of color. I thought it would be fun to do skin tone, but then it was like harder to figure out what to do with this. Also, um, the Asian population, people from the Pacific Islands and American Indians, we grouped them together. Um, the reason was because numerically they were just very small, small numbers. Um, so you see everyone has very high levels of belief, although the Latinx population, um, they are lower. Among a Protestant group of churches, this kind of makes sense. In other studies where they're looking in a, at a Roman Catholic group, this, that they would measure higher. Um, when it comes to belonging, everyone is really kind of clustered together there around the like 3.9 measure. And it, when it comes to behaving, you can see um, there's kind of like uh, the other population is kind of the lowest than the white population. Um, with the Latinx population and the um, kind of the people of color that are grouped together right here are the highest with regard to Christian behaviors. So not all of these groups, though, the differences are not all statistically significant. You can see which one is not as the differences are not as great, right? It's this belonging category. So we can look at all of them individually. So this is um, around Christian belief, just to show you. Also, these little, like the letter I there, those are error bars. So when you do statistics like this, you want to say there's a margin of error here. We didn't ask every single white person in each of these, pop, each of these denominations. But the more, the higher response rate, the smaller the error bar. So you can see the error bar for the Latinx population is larger. We had fewer of them. And for the white population, it's a lot smaller because we had more of them. So as you look at this, and I'll show you the other ones, um, what does this mean? So it means that if you have a different racial identity in different churches, you are having different experiences um, that lead you to answer different ways on our in our questions and the way we measured belief. The belonging one again did not statistically vary in a meaningful way and the behavior one did as well. So what are the results here? It shows us that bodies matter. The body that your kid comes to youth group in or confirmation in makes a difference. These results show that the embodied lived experiences, so when we say embodied, we say that a lot, stuff like that, like your context. I feel like that's a buzzword. We should have had bingo. But context bingo, all the word, buzzwords you're going to hear a million times at this conference. But the embodied lived experiences, the race, the gender identity of the people who come to our programs, they have different experiences that affect their Christian beliefs and behaviors, belonging is not there, um, in significant ways. Also, that uh, purple bar that I didn't show before, that 14%, um, youth who did not select male or female scored higher in belonging than youth that did select a gender. It was only slightly higher, so I have to calculate, do the t-test, p-test, I don't know what it's called, one of those tests. Um, on this. So what's the big question then, right? 
The big question is, um, how do we do ministry that pays attention to the bodies, the physical presence of the people who are there? Raise your hand if you've gone somewhere and you've been the only one. I'm on committees where I am the only woman, the only woman younger than 60. So imagine your youth you work with. Are any of them the only one? Or are they in a or are they part of the majority? And how does that affect the way they experience God or they experience faith? So when I went to Grove City College, I was one of the only ones who thought women should go into ministry. All my girlfriends were like, women shouldn't be ordained. And I was like, whatever. It made me stronger. <laughs> um, but that, but I had trouble finding peers. My body, the fact that I'm a woman, made a difference there. It, it, my experience of God was one of like, I loved the rebellious stories in scripture. <laughs> that meant something. It made a difference. I have some questions here, too, um, that I want to bring up for further exploration. But first, I'm wondering, as you look at this, what questions does this raise for you? So these are descriptive statistics. We have to analyze and make meaning of them. So how would you interpret them, or what questions does this raise for you? All right, I'm going to just pop up my last questions. You can look at them. These are ones that Kenda and I kind of came up with as we were um, ending this. Thank you so, so much. This has been exactly as I dreamed it. You guys are making my dreams come true. Thank you for being here. This is so If you'll join me in um, giving Katie and all of our presenters a hand for this conference. Thank you so, so much. Friends, it has, been, it has been such an honor to host each of you for this wonderful conference that has been a dream come true. And I trust that you've connected with others, that you've been encouraged, that you've been inspired, that you have been equipped to continue in the good and holy work to which you are called. Please stay in touch with us. Um, stay in touch with each other. Follow us on Facebook, uh, the IYM. It's uh, Princeton Seminary IYM. Sign up to receive our monthly newsletter. I promise we won't spam you. We're just telling you about all the cool things we're doing and some of our resources. In fact, a recent resource of ours um, in a series called Engage tackled the issue of gender identity in youth ministry, for instance. Also, uh, recently we did one on um, sexual misconduct in youth ministry. It's another part of my day job. So please uh, dive into those resources. And please feel free to email us, um, iym at ptsem.edu. We'd love to connect with you more personally. And friends, finally, iym fam, that's what you are. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy, think on these things. And may the God of peace hold you and keep you until we meet again. Amen. Amen.